Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for coming to our panel. Um, before we get started, we actually thought we might get to know you a little bit and ask you a couple of questions. Uh, so maybe first we can just ask how many of you are um, would consider yourselves an activist or activism curious. Nice. <laughs> awesome. And how many in the audience would consider themselves a designer or in the creative technology field? Amazing. Any other audience? How, how many of you have done experience design for activism? Okay. Cool. So hopefully we'll reveal some interesting possibilities for you here today. Awesome. So we'll just get started with some introductions. I'm Sadia Akasha. I'll be your facilitator for the panel today. Um, I'm the co-founder of Sithara Systems um, with my partner, who's the organizer for the event and in the front. Hi, Nathan. <laughs> um, and so our studio does work with cultural institutions and artists. Uh, so a lot of what we do is working with um, institutions and artists that are going to be creating works in public spaces that are accessible to the public. Um, and I have a project that I want to focus on specifically today. It's called In Love With The World. And this was a project that was up at the Tate Modern uh, last year for four months. It's a fleet of uh, flying dirigibles that were in a old power generation plant on the River Thames. Um, they were fully autonomous and uh, my studio worked on developing the software, uh, the brain essentially, the motivations and even different personalities for these different uh, creatures that inhabited the space. This project was really exciting for us because it provoked a question and conversation for the audience to re-examine their relationship with animals and with machinery, to really think about living alongside these other creatures. So when the audience entered the Tate, they weren't coming in to watch machines do work for them. They weren't coming in to see animals in some sort of entertainment fashion or as pets. They were actually just coming in and inhabiting the same space that these creatures lived in day after day for four months. So uh, throughout this, I'll be referencing back to this topic a little bit um, of this, this conversation around uh, reframing our relationship with nature, within nature, and sort of going beyond the hierarchy. And I'd like to pass it on to the next, to the next person. Hi everyone, I'm Kristen Gutekunst. I am the CEO and co-founder of Overview Collective with my partner Tarek over there. We're very well supported by our partners today, so we're very, very happy that they're here and um, <laughs> they've given us a lot of love in our careers and, and been there with us for a lot of things and, and actually many of us are working with our partners, so uh, we have to give a shout out to them. Um, so, we founded Overview Collective in 2019. It was born out of a passion to bring together our backgrounds. Um, I worked for many years with the United Nations, um, especially with bringing in new media and new technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality as a way to bring in new technologies for storytelling, for connecting decision makers to the public in different ways. Um, we also did a lot of experimentation with surveys, with data collection, with using social media even during the kind of new year, age of that, um, and bringing it together in exhibitions that traveled. Um, we're doing a lot now with um, how we bring this to the general public, with especially young people, and, and we really focus a lot on climate action and green jobs and sustainability. So um, I'm going to focus on one of the projects that we, we, I did in 2019 to 2020. Um, but I've also worked at Expo 2020 Dubai, and I'm also currently um, consulting with a company uh, to, do, to double global bean consumption. So if you really like beans, also talk to me about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we passed. Um, so in 2018, I was working with the World Food Program, and this was a really interesting time for them because they wanted to promote uh, their work with the digital transformation. 
And they, we, I had worked for several years with organizing exhibits during the UN General Assembly, so it was really exciting to work with one organization, um, especially on this topic. And so they kind of said, what can we do with this very large space? You know, we had a pretty interesting audience. Uh, this is just before the sort of main line until you get into the off limits for just very, very senior people very uh, VIP people. So actually it was open to some of the public and actually Toshi worked with me one year there and I met Weena one year there. So it's, it's fun to see this panel coming together after uh, all the years of kind of being in each other's space. Um, so this was the first iteration and then from here it kind of grew into something that traveled all the way until July 2020. Um, it went to the European Union and it was the first time the UN had actually exhibited at the EU and this was a really, really amazing space and we worked with different designers in each space to kind of tailor the exhibit um, so you could see how well they, they, they let it fit in with the beautiful architecture there. Um, it, there was a cinema ad that was playing with Sawa, if you're familiar with them, so that was one of the things we, we, we incorporated. Um, we had the first augmented reality storytelling that was a bird's eye view to look at um, three different countries and how they were rolling out biometrics and satellites and um, other uh, ways that they were helping their beneficiaries with new technologies. And it was great because we were using a new technology to talk about new technologies. We're already bringing people into that story. Uh, we incorporated virtual reality, which actually was one of the most popular things on a regular basis. Um, we had chatbots, we had drones, we had a, a, a graphic novel that people could experiment with. Um, but one of the, my favorite things was actually a hydroponics display. And um, this was no tech, uh, but is tech in its own way. Um, and people could just watch plants grow over the course of a week. And it's amazing to see these little guys and how much they grew just in the time that the exhibit was open. So I'll be referring back to that in mind. Do you need this? Uh, maybe. Let's see. Hi, everyone. I'm Toshi Anders Hu, and uh, I my background is as a media artist, uh, media activist, and media educator. Um, I've done a lot of work in museum exhibit design, everything from work in the Smithsonian to the National Constitution Center. Uh, I also have dabbled a little bit in documentary filmmaking. I co-produced and co-directed a, a film called The Singularity is Near with Ray Kurzweil. Um, and then I just do a lot of playing with light. I like to say all my work really focuses around light and wonder. And my operational definition of wonder is motivated curiosity, which is, I think, one of the best things you can bring to the world is motivating people's curiosity. Today, I now work at a place called uh, Institute for the Future, IFTF, and I run a lab there called the Emerging Media Lab. And Institute for the Future has been helping the world think about long-term futures since 1968, uh, way before I was there. Uh, but I've been there since 2016, and uh, we have a number of different labs, everything from future food, future of work, future of equity, future of governance. Um, but my lab is the Emerging Media Lab, where we're looking at the future of human communication, collaboration, and connection through the lens of emerging media technologies um, and mythologies. Let's see if I can play. So can I, can you clip on my, my video? So, so we do uh, both uh, forecasting at IFTF, so we help people. No one can predict the future, by the way. I don't believe anybody that says they can, especially if they're from Silicon Valley. Um, but we do forecast, which is imagine possible futures. And really the value there is to imagine yourself and your organization different possible futures. Since the human brain isn't really actually great at imagining the future. So we do things like uh, we've created a lot of uh, experiences up in the left-hand corner. That's Simtainer. It's a shipping container that we turned into a VR capture zone. And we were, this is for our annual conference, the 10-year forecast. And we created an experience simulating three possible futures of modular architecture, looking at uh, we have let people step into a uh, micro home, a micro clinic, and a micro farm. Um, and we just created that, uh, I think, in 2017. And then actually, yeah, Kristen brought us to the UN General Assembly. And actually, that's when I met Wiena as well. So a little full circle there. Um, so we've been doing a lot of VR work. We use VR both uh, to tell, teach people about this technology, but also just as a tool to allow people to step into these possible futures. Um, today, uh, we're 
starting to look more at generative AI. So we're starting to build tools. As you may know, things like ChatGPT aren't great with facts, but fortunately there are no facts about the future. Um, so uh, maybe not the best artificial intelligence, but in an incredible augmented imagination machine. So we're building tools like here. This is a scenario, future scenario generator in the upper right-hand corner that we're building uh, to help people not to predict the future again and not to replace human forecasting, but to supplement and stimulate and even interrogate your own imagination. Um, and then I mentioned we're not just looking at media technology, but we're also looking at media mythology. And this is the stories that we're that are emerging with our new capacities for storytelling. And that's really the focus of a lot of my work over the years. You know, if you work in emerging media technology, you know a lot of it, um, there's a lot high novelty factor, right? Everyone just wants to try the new thing. Uh, the work that I try to do is how do we look beyond the, the novelty factor? And my methodology for that is really looking at what are the new metaphors represented in these technologies that didn't exist in previous media formats before. And if you believe, as I do, that the building blocks of story are metaphor, then the question becomes, with these new metaphors, what are the stories you can tell and what are the conversations you can have that you couldn't have before? So that's a little introduction to my work. <coughs> Mic drop. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for attending our session today. And many thanks to Nathan and Sadio for putting this together. It's uh, such an honor to be on stage with uh, some of the inspirations for my having gotten into experience design and activism. So the ongoing conversations that I've been having with Toshi and Kristen, Sadia and Nathan have been hugely influential in the direction of the work that I'm doing currently. Um, I started out as a graphic designer and am now uh, working as a creative director of experience design. And at the same time, um, I've had a fine arts practice. And as I got into experience design, I realized how important it was to actually start conceiving of spaces and um, aesthetics in 3D. So I developed a uh, sculptural practice. And um, and then over time, I realized, you know, that's it's a bit um, taxing, and I wanted to like kind of start to merge my professional practice in creative direction with my fine arts practice. And so, um, you know, I started doing that uh, by uniting the two in uh, cause-driven artworks and concepts. Um, so there are some of the projects I've worked on featured on the right side here. So um, Light Strike Challenge is an immersive installation that I created uh, with Adidas uh, and at the agency AVNC. It's a um, launch for a new tennis shoe uh, or sneaker. Um, on the upper right, that's an example of a sculpture um, that uh, you know started out as something that was kind of like a mythology to Toshi's point. It was considering um, uh, what prosthetics in the future could look like, and um, it ended up uh, being developed as a functional wearable system that was networked and had you know, a lot of hardware um, connected to the internet, etc. Um, bottom left is an installation that is uh, it's a small scale sculpture which I'm exploring to see if we can actually create immersive installations that don't require. Um, large scale uh, in terms of the materials that we utilize. Um, can we still tell really immersive stories without building out, um, you know, large installations, essentially? And the bottom right is a project that is called Disassembly. That is what I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, so let's see. Um, so Disassembly is an immersive installation that's an artwork um, and it was seeded by the Smithsonian and then later shown at um, two different uh, exhibitions. The idea is to tell the story of the electronic waste pathway, which is actually an illicit trade. Um, you know, all of our electronics are not truly recycled. They're kind of broken down in e-waste villages by the global poor, um, which then, you know, creates toxic environments for them. So the idea was to simulate a um, factory setting in, an, you know, either a gallery space or an institution, and the center of that is always this rotating um, conveyor belt 
um, around which there are workstations that are inspired by Foxconn factories. And so at this conveyor belt, people disassemble electronics um, in kind of like a free play. There's, there aren't any instructions. You just explore um, by taking apart electronics with hand tools. And at the same time, um, you're kind of witnessing uh, the images and video from the electronics disassembly that actually takes place in these um, toxic e-waste villages. So you're able to kind of generate empathy by doing a parallel, um, you know, participating in a parallel activity. You're disassembling e-waste, somebody else is participating, or disassembling e-waste. Um, and so, you know, having done that in different environments kind of generates that empathy with the other person on the other side of the pathway. Um, this uh, platform ultimately, uh, you know, centers around this disassembly line at its core, um, but then it is also paired with programming. I'm going to see if I can kind of back up a little bit. Um, probably not. Um, but... Uh, the programming that, um, you know, site-specific has included uh, artwork workshops where kids disassemble um, electronics and then reconstitute the parts into sculptures that reimagine how our future could be, um, you know, through uh, environmental mitigation. Um, and uh, we've also featured uh, panels where we've brought together like, leaders in e-waste um, recycling um, including people who are driving activism, people who are um, working at the EPA, people who are watchdogs, um, you know, bringing the, this issue to the attention of the United Nations and international leaders, and then people who are working on a local level to recycle um, electronics responsibly. Um, we've also held electronic waste recycling events where um, we work in partnership with the recyclers to... Um, process those electronics um, responsibly and above board. Um, and uh, as well, we've had exhibitions alongside this of uh, photography that um, is, you know, part of that activism um, calling attention to uh, the tragedies that are happening in, e in these e-waste villages. Um, so uh, with that, maybe I'll kick it back to Sadia. Sounds good. <coughs> Thanks, everyone, for the introductions. That was really helpful. Um, so I thought with that, we just jump right into the panel. We have some um, questions kind of lined up that we can use to structure our conversation today. And then we'll make sure to have um, about 10 minutes at the end for Q&A so we can get audience participation as well. Um, Uh, so our first question really for all of us to, to answer, and I think I'm sure you also have really good answers to this as well, is why seed activism? And this is a little bit of sort of how did you get here? How did you find yourself in this space uh, in your career? Was this always a driving force? Did um, Were there seminal moments that kind of changed your trajectory in your life? Um, so that's sort of the big question here. Um, yeah, I think that for me, what I realized is that, um, you know, if uh, the more I learned about activism and environmental causes and social justice causes through friends, the more uh, inspired I was to amplify. And I think that that was the most influential for me. It wasn't necessarily like learning about, um, you know, getting this information, gleaning this information through media. It was really through my community in this grassroots kind of way. And so, um, you know, what I realized is that uh, brands can also kind of patch into this where, um, you know, thinking about this from an advertising perspective, brands can patch into this by, um, you know, inspiring individuals and then allowing those individuals to amplify the cause um, because they become advocates through an experience or through some sort of um, brand messaging. For me, it was, uh, I would say, kind of a, a unique path. Um, I studied psychology and I wanted to be a psychologist since I was maybe 11 years old. Um, and I've always been fascinated with uh, how people make decisions and what they decide to act on in their lives. Uh, and that's something that drove me forward. And I studied psychology. I worked in the field for a while. And I slowly start to understand that there is uh, always going to be a system within which every individual is making decisions. 
So we are affecting each other. These systems that we live in are affecting us and our thinking. And over time, that along with an art practice um, developed into, uh, into sort of pursuing projects that allow us to unpack systems in a way that audiences can really query and question um, how it's affecting them and what, they're, what part they hold within that. So we put up the sustainable development goals and either the wheel or the actual goals up there a few times. I'm just curious, who is familiar with them? Okay, so these were ratified in 2015 by all governments. And people usually think of them as the UN's goals, but that's actually incorrect. Governments sign them as a promise for their people, and this has been an amazing vehicle for the UN to open its doors and to invite private sector, NGOs, and the general public to get involved and actually adopt this themselves and to see themselves in these 17 goals. So if you care about the climate, if you care about gender equality, if you care about no poverty or zero hunger, there is a place for you in the sustainable development goals. And that has been an amazing vehicle for us um, from the new media and the storytelling side of things to bring in creatives to help the UN tell the stories about the people that they're helping, but also to actually reach people in ways that they've never been able to before. And um, this has been a really inspiring thing for me because I have often been talking to people who have never had the chance to have a say in government or in policy. And we've been able to consolidate these voices through, through, through um, either a variety of different stories, so there's not one single narrative, or else through surveys to bring those voices directly to decision makers. And another thing that's really important about them is that they are inclusive, so they really reach across you know, all of these different silos. You know, the, the previous agenda was very focused on basic human rights, but this is at now looking at quality over quantity and how we can bring in the environment and how we can bring in justice, how we can bring in good governance. So um, it's just been such an incredible way to, to not just preach to the converted. So you see we're often talking to policymakers, but often they're working on a siloed issue. But it, we can't work in siloed issues anymore. You know, health is impacted by climate. Climate is impacted by food. Food is impacted by many different things, by energy, by, by you know, governance itself. So... For us to be talking to policymakers about the spectrum of these things and to be able to stand in the halls of power and to say, actually, even though you're working on this, you should care about this, has been in a really amazing way for us to kind of bring all this together. Um, I would say that the seeds for, for my activism came from some hippie parents that I was raised by. Uh, and, I would, and I was always interested in media and filmmaking from a young age, but... Um, and I'm going to date myself here, but in, I was in high school and I participated and helped uh, organize a protest of the first Gulf War in 1990, or 91 rather, um, and uh, I was shocked to read the local newspaper coverage of this uh, protest, and it was nothing that happened at the protest. It was a completely distorted view, and it was my first-hand view of, oh, the power of media storytelling, and what, you know, you can take a, have a direct action or street action, uh, but really the, the, the power of storytelling, particularly media storytelling, that can s disseminate that throughout the world. So I got really involved then in media activism, which I, I define both as helping to support um, activist groups and street, street action through media coverage at the time, but also media literacy, uh, I think is really, uh, so I got involved in teaching media literacy to young people. Um, today, you know, my work, uh, I still get involved in occasional street protests, and I think that's very important to show that kind of where you stand on things, and but I also think it's really important to be working from multiple angles. So uh, one of the great things about uh, the job that I have right now is even though we're, you know, we're a futures research organization, in many ways we wouldn't officially say this, but we are an activist organization in the sense if you think of activism as helping people get motivated to take action to make change. And really our role isn't necessarily to advocate for a specific type of direction, but even just to get people to break out of the story that the future is going to be the same as the past is a highly activating um, event for many pe for people that we work with. So I think that kind of seeding, and that's why I mentioned wonder, that's more in my kind of 
art practice where I try to generate wonder, but the, that generating that curiosity or what we call possibility spaces for people, I think is a big place. Maybe not even just seeding, that's creating the kind of fertile ground for them to plant their own seeds. I have a follow-up question. <laughs> um, what do you look for, and this is for, for everyone in the panel, what do you look for in a project or a client that makes them a good fit for what you want to accomplish? I think that, um, like having you know been in the room when uh, you know the creative agency is concepting something and presenting that to the client, I think it's really important that you know there's clarity around what the goals of a project are. So let's say it's around like climate justice or something like this. Um, I think that it's important for the client to kind of have a baseline sense of what can be accomplished. And I think, you know, for me, we're kind of beyond the point of awareness. Um, you know, I think we start, to, we need to start making like massive changes on a policy level. And so I think if the client isn't already committed to that, um, you know, putting money where their mouth is and they're more interested in like, uh, like, interrogating like what's the audience sentiment or the kind of uh, civic sentiment, I feel like we're you know, probably not gonna get there. I think if they're only interested in um, creating marketing pieces that um, you know, show activism but don't necessarily address the issue in a head-on way, you know, there's a lot of confusion, for example, around like recycling versus climate justice. Like those, you know, or climate change, like those two things can often be conflated, but they're not necessarily, you know, tackling one doesn't address the issues of the other. So I think that for there to be clarity on that is really important. And then also for the agency that you're working with to um, foster subject matter experts so that, you know, you can, you can incorporate real solutions from the very beginning as opposed to, you know, coming up with a solution which ultimately might be greenwashing, um, you know, in a campaign. I always try to start with a couple of kind of, I, I, I divide it into a couple of things. The first is, what are you trying to actually communicate? And what is gonna be the takeaway for the audience? And do you know who the audience is? Um, the example I've given is pretty clear. I mean, WFP wanted to communicate about this digital transformation they're going to, and they wanted to use it as a chance to reach new donors and new partners. And just to say that right after that, they actually won the Nobel Peace Prize, so make your own conclusions about how effective the exhibit was. <laughs> just kidding, it definitely wasn't because of me. Um, but they really needed a chance, they needed a way to communicate about what they're doing in a different way. Um, so that was a, a great client to work with because they, they knew what they wanted to do. The second thing is looking at the capacity, both financially and from a human capacity, to achieve those goals. So they had a huge commitment to bringing in all of their staff from the highest levels to show up and to talk to the, the, the other senior people that they were targeting, as well as um, some of the more junior members who could actually do the work. And often that's not the case. You get somebody that comes to, the, to you and they say, I have this amount of money, what can you do? And if you're trying to break into these halls of power and, and just in general, if, if you're trying to speak to communities, you want the communities to be talking to each other because they're a much more trusted um, way to actually reach people in those places. Um, and then the third thing is looking at what is the follow-up? So do you just want to have a one-off? You know, if you're spending a lot of money on a virtual reality uh, experience or an augmented reality experience, that's a bad investment because you can do so much with that and you can really pop it up in a boardroom, you can pop it up on a street corner, you could do so much of it. And of course that's time for, you know, staff members to actually be doing that. But if you have that internal commitment, you can make your money go so much farther and you can make your message go so much farther. But one of the things that we're going to talk about at some point is, you know, what is the takeaway? So they're learning about your exhibit and how are they gonna connect with it? You know, to learn about things that are, are troubling in this world is disempowering as a person. So you actually need to give them a way to connect with it and to take that away as how they can become an activist themselves and start them on a small part of the journey. Go you know, get them interested in learning more about it, but then give them a place to go learn about it or give them someone to connect to. You know, often we would just even hand out our own 
social media or our own emails and say, if you really care about this, just contact me. Like I, I will be that entry point for you to join this community of people who care about this. So we'll get into that a bit more later. Uh, just to, yeah, just to double down on just basic good communication practice, like know your audience, right? People forget that all the time. Important part, um, you, can, you can say all you want, but if you don't understand how someone's going to receive that information, where they're at, you're not really going to move them very far. Um, I would say just, you know, the, your question was like, how do, what, what's the best client? I mean, for us, especially when you're working with a large institution or particularly large bureaucracies, having an internal champion is absolutely a must. Um, you can't push things from the outside unless someone's in there internally pushing for you. Um, and then I would say the best way you can support those internal champions often, especially when you, you know, part of the, the big, one of the biggest reasons why activism doesn't happen or why people don't plan for the future is feels far off, right? They have a lot of immediate things that are nipping at their feet um, and their budgets and their attention and all these things. So we have a phrase that we use to help frame this, which is urgent futures. You need to create a sense of urgency, all right? And you need to create a sense of urgency around, to your point, both the crises as well as the opportunity. But you need, if you don't create that sense of urgency, they're not going to have the kind of political uh, engine to push that through the, these larger organizations. Yeah, I would definitely echo that. Having that stakeholder that um, is the champion for the same cause on the inside, having those subject matter specialists it just kind of shows that your client has actually put effort and thought into this, that they have people on their team that are really there to back this up. Um, and then the other thing we do, this is sort of a softball question, is like really early on we start asking about um, what their plans are for, um, how you were saying earlier, how they're going to manage all of the electronic components within each of these um, installations or the work that we do. We work a lot with larger institutions like uh, museums, and do renovations with them, and we want to talk to them about end-of-life plans right away. Um, which companies are they buying from? What are their recycling practices? Is there transparency in the development of the electronics that they're purchasing? And their openness to that conversation can tell you a lot about um, whether this is more of an external-facing campaign or if they are willing to take this very seriously. So this actually brings us um, to our next question, which is about our audiences. Um, and we've sort of started flirting with that topic already of really kind of getting into and defining our audiences. Um, so I'll start with you again, Weena, if you want to talk a little bit about who um, you think of as your audience, who your clients think of as your audience as well. I think in, um, you know, both across my fine arts practice and also in advertising, my audience uh, is the individual who's going to participate in the installation. Um, I guess second, second to that would be uh, people who are going to consume the documentation of it. And, you know, maybe you've had this experience as well as a um, creative, but oftentimes, you know, the experience that, um, you know, people are having in real time isn't necessarily as impactful as the documentation. So um, that's been an interesting evo evolution of experience design, I think, in the past five years from what I've seen, where, you know, it's, it's critical to think about the work as a cinematic piece in documentation as a short film um, that's as important as thinking about what the experience of the participant is um, IRL. Um, so, you know, to that point, I think it's important for the experience to be really compelling for somebody who's experiencing this as boots on the ground, but then as well, like you have that secondary audience um, who will only be experiencing this as a film piece. So for us, our audience is generally the public because we work so much with public institutions. Um, and it's interesting um, whether or not the client feels that way really depends on how they're funded, <laughs> is what we've learned. Um, if they're funded by a board that's doing the fundraising for most of, for example, the art and things, the exhibits that are going up in their museum, they may not really uh, put as much effort into thinking about the interactions and the transformations that the audience and the visitors coming through the space might experience. On the other hand, we found working with uh, natural sciences, um, history, 
museums and cultural institutions, they seem to have a very, very clear idea of really getting out there and communicating with the audience. They're more aligned with almost like library spaces um, and kind of creating that open community space. And so we really enjoy that and being able to kind of forward that, um, that conversation with them. Well, I've kind of alluded to who it often is, but what's really interesting about the kind of work that I've, I've done often is that we create something that can transform. So it may be this target audience in this location, but it may change drastically. So we tried to have um, that really strong sort of foundation so we know exactly the kind of talking points we want to get across and then we can elevate those if it's for a, an informed audience or we can simplify it a little bit if it's for a general public who may be meeting it for the first time um, but using just we kind of rode the wave of you know the new tech so I was also executive producer of United Nations virtual, virtual reality so we were the first people showing you know, policymakers and the general public VR most of the time. So they were first interested in the tech, they were first inter interested in the entertainment side of the storytelling, but then we got them with like the story at the end and taught them about Syrian refugees and about climate action and stuff like that. So um, we were always trying to kind of think about how it could be multi-audiences and, and that really has also allowed us to, to reach a lot of people, but also to really make our content go into a lot of different directions and be more impactful and, and, and yeah. At Institute for the Future, you know, in terms of audience, sometimes that audience is uh, internal for our organization. We do a lot of strategic forecasting. Um, and again, these forecasts are not predictions, they're provocations, they're imagine this, we generally run multiple f forecasts for um, organizations, especially if it's for strategic planning. Um, and so if someone's gonna be making strategic decisions off it, you're gonna be doing a very different kind of output than something that's more public facing, that's like either a, um, you know, I mean, we do do projects for commercial companies that are more PR and marketing, like, hey, we're thinking about the future, we're, you know, the future of X. Um, so I think that's a really big question is like, is this for a public audience or is this for an internal audience? We also, there's also this category of, uh, to be just to be frank, is sometimes it's public and it says it's for public, but it's really for the investors, <laughs> for the company, right? We know this, like uh, a lot of times futures work or interesting emerging tech is really just to um, get, get an article written up in, you know, some uh, technology magazine. Um, but I think uh, the reason I dis distinguish those is, again, you know, kind of to what Weena's point, too, is like, again, not just thinking about who the audience is, but where you're trying to get them and what the takeaway is supposed to be. And, you know, just like here at South by Southwest, like you, even, you know, uh, us who have friends who have exhibits over at the XR Gallery, like, we're going to get to see maybe one thing, but we'll hear about maybe five or six things. And we won't just hear that there was an XR experience, but what's the story attached to that? And to your point, Kristen, is like sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes it is an attractor, right? Sometimes the emer emerging media technology side of it is an attractor to, you know, to get people's attention. And also to say like, why would somebody go to all the effort of creating a virtual reality experience about this story? Um, so I think that kind of the continuing, the echoing secondary audiences, third tertiary audiences are really important to think about in terms of extending the reach of the impact that you're trying to have. Yeah, and I think to that point, um, because we're working with the public and we're a lot of times working in spaces where there are families, um, different, you know, people from different ages, different backgrounds kind of coming in, we do have to make our work very, very approachable. Um, but we've been thinking a lot about what's the takeaway, what's the action, how can we get them, get this family to be really invested in, you know, climate change policies or infrastructure changes that their community is making. Um, so we're always looking for ways to kind of bake that in, that here's a group that is doing this work and here's an invitation, you can join their newsletter and you can learn about it. Um, and so just kind of essentially helping the public become activists themselves to, to put that pressure on policymakers um, and to kind of hold people accountable. Um, because, you know, there's this in myth of uh, individual responsibility and of course we can all do what we can, but a lot of these issues are systemic and they're very large and they do need to be solved at that higher level, the work that, that you two are doing. 
So I almost feel like maybe for Wina as well, for both of us, it's almost like engaging the public and becoming co-conspirators and saying, no, keep that pressure on. <laughs> Follow up on this, you know, this is serious. Yeah, I think just um, adding to that, um, you know, there's kind of like a return on investment there where, you know, if the brand has invested in the messaging from the get-go and then they hear this groundswell of support from their audience that, you know, that feeds back up and kind of perpetuates this uh, virtuous cycle where the brand has gotten positive feedback and they're like, okay, great, we want to continue to tell this story because this is how, um, you know, we're best engaging our audience. And then, you know, again, as co-conspirators, both the stakeholders at the top and the um, individuals who are, you know, boots on the ground are pushing the agenda forward. And, and I think through that amplification and exponential effect, that's how we can kind of turn the ship around. I really appreciated the point that you've both been making about how important it is to document these activations. Um, we've actually found that we use these moments to stage these kind of inter intermediary experiences with a policymaker talk, watching or, or even in some points talking. If you haven't been to the expo to see shared studios portals, um, we brought that to several UN events and it's at booth 545. I highly recommend you go see it. Um, but it's a direct way for people to actually have live conversations with um, people who often don't have a voice across the world. And for example, we had a situation with um, an Iraqi displaced person and having an actual conversation with their prime minister at the UNGA one year. And, you know, it's a five-minute conversation for them, but then we took lots of photos, and it's actually helpful for policymakers sometimes to showcase, you know, a type of greenwashing maybe if they do nothing with it, but if you have an informed, activated group around it who can then come back and say, remember you had this conversation and you promised this or you talked about how you cared about this, that can be a really important tool for activists on the ground to actually go back and refer to it. And sometimes policymakers actually need that to even point back to their own um, their own ministers to say, look, people do care about this. I have evidence. It's right here. So we can often be an intermediary to, to helping both ways. So on this topic of sort of collecting evidence and documentation, um, how, how much do you find that um, success is still being measured in sort of eyeballs or clicks? Um, and, and is there a better way to measure success that you've actually reached someone, that someone is now part of part of this movement I think that um, you know maybe one thing you know, in terms of the goals that I establish for projects I don't necessarily want to convert everybody and I don't know if I necessarily want to convert people who are kind of resident and like you know not the easy conversions I think that for me, what's really um, validating and like what will kind of move our agenda along more quickly is to, um, you know, give the folks who are already on our side tools to amplify further. Um, and then maybe, you know, there are kind of folks who are like on the fence and we can, you know, through a very short um, experience, because we all know that everybody has very short attention spans, we can get them to become advocates for the cause and amplify um, that to me is a success. Um, you know, that's where we get that exponential effect as opposed to changing the hearts and minds of individuals. We really want to find somebody who is going to change their mind and then share. I think that's a really good point, especially with um, climate change. There's been a lot of research done by uh, the Yale, um, I think it's the YPCCC, it's the Yale Program or Policy for Climate Communication. Um, and what they found is that across the United States, people tend to think that the number of people that are concerned about the climate crisis are a lot smaller than the actual number. So we have sort of duped ourselves, and I don't know how much media storytelling has had a part of this, but we've sort of duped ourselves into thinking that this isn't an issue that others care about, but it turns out the majority of Americans are um, you know, alarmed or highly concerned about it um, and are looking for that next push, that next actionable step and sort of a little bit more information that they can push things forward with. 
Um, so I think it's it's really valuable to think about, you know, working within the group and kind of increasing the level of knowledge and increasing the level of ac activism um, rather than kind of chasing the outliers who might be a much smaller minority than we you know necessarily know. I definitely agree that, you know, to move the needle on these big issues, often it's just, it's top down. You have to get decision makers to, to really start making the right decisions. But, you know, you have to vote for those decision makers if, you have, if you're living in a place where they are electable. And uh, in order to do that, you need to be an informed citizen. So you do actually have to do bottom up, top down. Um, and, you know, I think people are, as you say, they are more informed about a lot of issues. Um, they do care, but often they lack the knowledge about where to start. So if you can be an intermediary to help them know where to start on their own journey. But more than that, I think the most important part is connecting people to a community. So, I mean, on my own journey, I, I was working mostly with human rights side of things, um, but I cared about climate. And it was actually not really a topic that I was involved with a lot at the UN, so I joined the Climate Reality Leadership Training, um, which is I also highly recommend if you care about that issue, because what's very hard for people who, who care about the climate is how scientific and complex it is, and so you feel very um, kind of shy to actually start talking about that topic. But um, being part of a community who is organized and they now have chapters in many, many cities and countries across the world, then you can actually start to, to join together and then you can make your activism go that much farther. So if you're trying to help connect people to that community and to those topics, I think that is the most effective way to actually help people go from a, a slightly informed kind of care citizen to the next step, which is like really taking a strong stand in their communities. Uh, at IFTF, we're we're focused on ten years in the future or longer. So, uh, you know, if, if we were being judged on our ability to predict the future, we'd have to wait ten years to see if we did well. But we're not, because as I said, we do not predict the future. Um, I would say that um, for me, uh, when I'm working with our partners or clients, again, the purpose of doing forecasting is not to say what's going to happen; it's to Imagine what possibly could happen. Try to flesh that world out through scenarios, through creative experiences, through what we call artifacts from the future or headlines from the future to really bring yourself into that world. And really, the goal of that is to imagine yourself or your organization in that world and understand how you might react to that space. And not just how you might react, but how you might see yourself differently in that new context. And really, it's a, it's a, it's a lot about self-knowledge as individuals and organizations. So I think increasingly, and you know, I alluded to in my slide, this idea of mythology. There's a lot of mythologies of the future as well. Um, and I've been very fascinated with this concept of the, uh, the, the uh, in popular culture that's really erupted over this last year in particular, this mythology of the multiverse, not a mathematical multiverse, but a cultural social multiverse, which recognizes that we all live in our own universe, but we have to overlap our universes, and how do we do that? Um, and I think one of the th most important things there for people to learn, and kind of my own personal gauge that I've realized this year, of like, am I being successful both in my larger projects or just my kind of direct interactions with people, is I think one of the most powerful things that you can do and give people agency with is to have them recognize that their story about how things are and how things could be is a story. And there's other stories. And it sounds simple, but that unlocks whole other worlds. Here, here. <laughs> yeah, I think that is that is really key. It's um it's interesting doing that project in Love with the World with artist Anika Yi. Um it was really mind-opening for uh, for us, for everyone on the team involved, and for the visitors. Um, because in that project, everyone that came into that space was just being asked to let go of their assumptions, their relationship with other creatures. You know, these, this was in London, so everyone's kind of living in a city, um, highly industrialized. They don't see anything bigger than a fox, maybe blurrily in the background at dawn. 
Um, all the animals that they interact with are pets or in parks, um, and they're you know they're much smaller. So they're used to all of us really are used to being the top dog, being in control, being able to manage and own that space. And so walking into that space and having these uh, eight to ten foot flying dirigibles hovering over you, having their own life, kind of living throughout the day. It was this moment that it created this moment of wonder and shock and awe where people kind of just stopped and a lot of people lay down and were just lost in this whole alternate reality. And it was sort of like provoking conversations. And this was the funnest part of measuring success was sort of just walking around for several weeks and listening to the conversations that people were having. Um, and, you know, some were logistical, but a lot of them were like, well, do you think that they know that we're here? You know, do you think that we are in their space or do they feel like they're in an aquarium? Wait, are we in an aquarium? You know, it was just, it was amazing. It really started to get people to question uh, question themselves and their, their location and this whole idea of there are different ways of living, being, and cohabiting. Yeah, and I, I actually got to see the Tate piece, but just on video like you saw today, before I met you, you and Nathan, and I remember watching it, just the video, and I had that like, oh, like that feeling. And that to me is like what I'm always going for, which is, you know, and there's, there's a quote that people often use, particularly in Silicon Valley, which is, you know, Arthur C. Clarke quote that says, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, which is often used to like wow people to buy stuff or invest in things. But really what it's saying, you know, what, what is magic? I mean, the reality, I, I like to add to that. Like, like magic, you're often being tricked. But the trick is when you know it's magic. If you go to a magic show, you know you're being tricked. And why do you go to that, right? You go to that magic show to experience something that breaks your model of the world, of how the world works. And that's what I experienced. Like, when I experienced your, your, your guy's piece at the Tate, like, I was like, wait, is the world more magical than I, my current model is holding? Is the world more interesting? Is there things I need to keep being curious, curious about? To me, that is like the, the seeds to plant in people. I mean, we also need to do really clear messaging on issues, but that you need to get people into that space because otherwise, I mean, and that's why people have a hard time thinking of the future. We're hardwired to project our models of the past into the future. So you have to break through that with a sense of awe and wonder or curiosity or mystery or creativity. Or I would just love to add that, um, you know, I come from a very, like, pessimistic perspective, but I think it's critical to actually tell optimistic mythologies. And this is where Toshi and I have had a lot of conversations and um, with Nathan and Sadia as well, because, you know, we're so used to these pessimistic, um, you know, catastrophic visions of the future and that's kind of you know what we um, will end up bringing to fruition however if we've seeded optimistic futures and there's something else we can imagine we can start to see the the indications of those futures as they come our way and we can pick up on those and help to actually bring to life the optimistic future that we want to live in Quick plug, if you're interested in optimistic futures, join Urgent Optimists uh, through IFTF. It's a new public organization that you can join and participate with Urgent Optimists imagining from all around the world uh, optimistic futures. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so we're actually, we want to make sure that we have enough time for Q&A. And our, our last uh, question for the panel was really, is there a cheat code? Is there a shorthand? Is there something that we should be scribbling down as if you do these three things or this one neat trick, you know, you'll convert the audience or what have you. Uh, but I think I'm actually going to open this up a little bit um, to the audience to start give, doing questions. Awkward transition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you just want to come up to the mic, and yeah, you can just line up at the mic and um, present your questions. Uh, hello, uh, thank you for the talk. Um, I have a question kind of on, uh, I, I worked in the art world for about seven years before becoming a designer, so I have like a lot of experience with installations, and I have no doubt of their impact. But one thing that I noticed is that um, the elements of like community engagement and community building are very limited. Uh, including by the institutions themselves. Uh, I think that there's there's like actual gatekeeping, but there's also like cultural gatekeeping in terms of like the spaces. Uh, and then, you know, people would say like, oh, well, like anyone can come to the gallery, but like 
there's like an interaction when you're standing outside a gallery where you're like, do I belong in the space? Can I go into the space? And frankly, it's just not like, like not good enough to just be like, oh, anyone can access it. Um, so I'm curious about how do we like take accountability for that as a reality of our institutions? Um, and then to take that even further, how do we build like community building and that engagement in terms of actual content creation uh, for this uh, impact? Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just want to answer that real quick before you know anyone else. Jump, everyone else can jump in too. But um, our work with the Tate was actually really amazing for a whole another reason. As an institution, um, we were blown away by how community oriented they are. Um, pretty much everyone at the Tate does audience insights. They do evaluations, and they even collect feedback from the public, from visitors on future gallery exhibitions that they're going to be putting together to see, is this topic interesting? What facet of this topic is interesting? And they actually use that to create their next exhibition, to develop it and curate it. I have not seen that done in the United States. Um, and I do think a little bit of that comes back to this funding question. They're funded by the Crown. So they are not beholden to any investors, um, to any fundraising bodies. They just have the funds. And so their mission is to go and be a public institution and cater to the public. And they take that very seriously. Um, but I do think there's, you know, also they're um, female-led. I think pretty much all, if not most, of the Tate galleries are female-led and the entire institution is female-led. Um, and they've centered this transparency, this back and forth community-led conversation um, as a key component of their values. So it is possible. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a big issue. And as, I'm, as you can see, often I'm on the side of things where it's hard to access. Um, but one of the things that's kind of a challenge for many of the kind of institutions I work with is funding. And you look at who is really in front of the public and it's brands with million dollar advertising budgets. Um, I love coming to places like South By to see what they're doing so I get ideas about how I can incorporate some of those cool activation ideas into targeting decision makers. Um, but it, it's, it is a challenge because it can often take a lot of really expertise in knowing how to reach those networks. Um, but because we've had some agility in terms of how we can scale up and scale down our exhibits, it's allowed us to work with other partners to carry our message for us. And that's actually a new thing for the UN is like, how do we let go of that messaging and, and allow other people to do it for us? And another great thing about the SDGs is anybody can take that forward. So um, it's been a very cool way to kind of let go control and hopefully reach more people. Um. A lot of the work that I've done with the Smithsonian APA has created a really amazing template for engaging audiences at all different levels. Um, when I was originally conceiving of myself as a fine artist, I was like, okay, the, you know, the goal here is to create like blue chip level art, you know, that feels like it's, you know, belongs at Christie's or, you know, the MoMA or something like this. And what I learned through the Smithsonian APA actually is that, you know, they took Smithsonian level budgets and instead of putting on shows that, you know, where they could pay for artwork for one or two artists, they distributed this as widely as they possibly could. So they engaged like 50, 60 artists, whereas, you know, another institution might engage only two. Um, they built community amongst those artists. And then I think that showing artwork and, um, you know, amplifying voices at all of these different levels of, um, you know, artist careers made the artwork much more approachable for audiences. Um, and, you know, w when the audience was able to see themselves and their voice um, and themselves as a creator in the artwork, that, I think, um, opened a lot of doors for us. You know, that made it much more approachable um, and allowed that message to feel like it was for everybody, whether you're somebody who wants to, you know, who's expecting like a, you know, blue chip level um, experience, or if you're somebody who maybe, you know, is a practitioner of arts and you just, you, you know, this is your kind of homespun, homespun practice and you don't necessarily share it with everybody. Thank you so much for that question. Is there, I think there's someone else with another question too. Thank you. I, I know it's a hard question. Thank you. <laughs> Important question. Okay. Um, what I want to ask is how if the campaign doesn't work? And for every activism, every activation, 
issue there are two sides. How if something touched the ethical, ethical side? And how do you evaluate? Because we have seen a lot of activism when went down the wrong pipe pipeline and create some chaos. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you work you, with your client through every stage to ensure that they stay on the course and you can help them to carry through positively that doesn't create public chaos? Yeah, do we have any examples of projects that we feel like we went sort of 80% of the way there and you know, we could have pushed further in the right direction, refined it more. I mean, I'll just speak broadly for Institute for the Future as a Silicon Valley organization. I think Silicon Valley has really led the world astray in many ways with technolo technological solutionism. And um, the idea, which is the idea that we can solve all our problems through technology. Um, and I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, questions that need to be asked around like what the viability of that and how we've been distracted. And and one of the things I like to say is we often forget, you know, we think about technology as things like artificial intelligence. Um, storytelling is a technology. Democracy is a human technology. Um, and I think uh, that's just, I mean, I'm just speaking particularly in our field and from our little corner of the world. Um, as an example of where I think sometimes it seems like you're going down a really great solution path, but you, you need to interrogate that uh, and really question. And that is one of the challenges, especially it's so hard to get a movement moving and get an organization moving in direction. It's not easy to ask people to question if that's the right direction once you got the whole train going. I think it's so important to start with the facts, make sure it's super fact-based. I mean, coming from the United Nations, everything is basically started with that. Of course, there is often a pol political agenda, but we are a member state organization, so we do have to sometimes balance the fact that we may have you know, someone funding us in particular, or we may have to be sensitive to the, another country, for example. Um, but story, if you, if you center a human story there, then how can you argue with someone's experience? And, and you're showcasing that experience, and it's hard to, to kind of go against that. But at the same time, show multiple experiences, because not everyone's the same. And, and that's where you get into danger about just focusing on a one-person story. Um, I think it's definitely a challenge, but sometimes if you're starting with just, these are facts, you know, it can go in different directions. Like if you care about um, that one issue, you can pick it up and run with it with in many di different directions. And and sometimes we have to let go of that. Um, you know, sometimes we don't have to control that because we do need everyone acting in different ways uh, about many different issues to really affect change. Right. So I think uh, we just have one last question, but I think we're also at time. So if you want to ask, we'll try to wrap up really quickly. Oh, okay. So sorry if this isn't like too coherent. Yeah. So um, I was wondering how you think that you were talking about earlier how everyone's kind of in their own little like world and universe, and I noticed that a lot of like the rich, like the super mega rich, you know, they seem to be kind of detached from like reality of people suffering and movements like that and activism there. And how do you think that you could use art and design to get their sort of attention and bring their attention towards this so that they could fund those sort of projects? Hell of a final question. <laughs> Important one. Um, I mean, I think it's a great example. If you have a billion dollars, you can really uh, decorate your your universe uh, to reaffirm um, that what your story is is the story for the world, right? We're seeing a lot of megalomaniacs who are supposedly leading the f the world forward um, with their own vision. I mean, that's a very, very difficult question. There's those folks like that are surrounded by people reinforcing them. Yes, 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 folks, all the time. Um, I think, you know, public opinion does matter. That when you have a mega ego, uh, you know, uh, the, what uh, what people think about you does matter. Um, so I think public opinion really does matter, and uh, creating that groundswell is an intervention point. 
Um, I think, you know, I mean, it is difficult because as we know, a lot of these, especially the more complicated things are expensive, right? So where does that money come from? Usually from institutions or sometimes from individual rich funders, right? So, I mean, one of the things that's nice about futures work and the futures frame is that it's a way, you know, just like science fiction, it's a way to talk about the present in a like less kind of charged way. Uh, so often organizations or even individuals who would be upset if you talked about changing things right now, if you talk about it in the future, are willing to kind of go there. Uh, I think that's one technique. But I think you're raising kind of one of the biggest questions that humanity is facing right now is like concentration of wealth and power right now. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, along with the peer pressure of the of the public, there's also peer pressure from others in their social milieu. Um, so, like, finding, like, the Keanu Reeves of the world and sort of, like, supporting them and getting them out there more, you can kind of try to create public pressure within, you know, uh, the rich people club. And it, it gets exceedingly harder and harder as they get more and more um, wealthy because then they're just sort of these four dudes vying for being the, mo you know, the top, the wealthiest man in the world. Um, but, yeah, I think it is, it is really tricky and it's sort of like reminding them that not, not everything is answerable by them. Like their vision, being able to break through to that, to say that your vision is not actually the complete picture. You don't hold everyone's reality, everyone's lived reality. So there's no way you can come up with all of the answers. I think it's just really hard when you, they are, they're surrounding themselves with people that are going to just reflect what they want to hear. So, yeah. I would say that um, maybe one of the most transformative um, tools that we have is really to frame the um, the person who's participating as the hero of the experience, right? Like we're all kind of used to video games, uh, science fiction. You know, this also kind of uh, speaks very well to the egoists of the world. But if you're able to put them in a scenario where they're allowed to be the hero, um, you don't necessarily need to create an experience that's super open-ended. You could create an experience where the answers are fairly obvious. But if every step of the way somebody is actively making the choice to... Um, you know, so that they feel like they have agency in the experience. Hopefully, you know, you can kind of bring them to this point where they've solved the problem and they feel celebrated. And I think that that is kind of our best chance at um, showing a pathway to somebody who's an egoist and might be kind of veering off in, you know, a different direction. You can show them like, well, if you choose this, everybody will love you. You'll be the hero. <laughs> and it also works for consumers, you know? So, I mean, like, you know, the, the average individual who's not an egoist. Well, I just want to thank everyone, um, everyone on the panel for joining us, everyone in the audience for sticking around. Really appreciate you all. Thank you so much.